you turn in your Bibles to Genesis, the 19th chapter, I ask you to continue to pray for me as we look to the Word of God. The preaching of the gospel in one sense is a miracle, and sometimes I think what a miracle it is when I am led or find things that the Lord burdens me to preach on. It comes from a lot of different directions, and I don't mind telling you the direction I got for looking at this this morning was from one of our little church members. He knows who he is. And so I won't call his name or embarrass him. But it was interesting to me that this subject was requested or asked about. Recently, I was visiting with a pastor of another church, and he was putting together a youth-oriented Bible study you know, for the younger folks, not excluding the older folks by any means. But as you know, for years, we've been carrying on an ongoing Bible study kind of focused on the college age and young adult, you know, teenage at different times. And so this brother said, I had it all planned out, what he was going to talk about. He said he had John 3.16 worked out from every angle to share with the young folks. He thought, he said, well, I'll ask the, our young folks that are going to participate in this, what do they want to hear about? And it was, it was not John 3.16. There's nothing wrong with John 3.16 and hearing about the truth of that. But this brother said the question that was on several of their minds was about the woke culture, you know, the sin of sodomy. How do we process that? What does the Word of God say about that? So as a minister of the gospel, I want you to understand, you know, I, I can miss it. I can miss the subjects that we need. I'm a man. I'm human. But I don't want to. One of the ways that we can get direction, aside from the Holy Spirit of God just leading us there, is communication. If there's something on your mind, if there's something burdening you that you want to hear about. It could be a one-on-one Bible study. It could be a group Bible study. It could be a burden to preach about it. So don't forget, just because I stand up here behind this piece of wood, you know, this is not a high tower. It should not be a high tower. It should be accessible, and you should express yourself on what is burdening you, okay? That helps me find direction. By the way, many times people have asked me questions. It's something I've already been studying on. So today... We're going to read a portion of scripture here and then take some lessons from Lot. That's the title of the message is Lessons from Lot. Genesis 19 and 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night. And wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot, and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, I have two daughters, which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, or journey among us for a while, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee 
than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Y'all pray for me, because I don't want to come across as hateful. I'm going to make myself not be hateful. I don't feel hateful toward this subject. But it is, in my estimation, unless I'm deceived, it is the most pressing subject that affects every single one of you, and me too. So the first question we ask about this situation, this is a bad situation. Lot has had violence threatened on his guests, and when he offered his daughters in exchange, instead of the guests, these men, these sodomites, have threatened violence towards him. This is a bad situation. Often we look to the Lord of the Rings, Brother Luke. (laughs) This reminded me of when Theoden King was surrounded at Helm's Deep by tens of thousands of enemy, and there's 300 or so of them, 300 fighting men. And one of the things that King Theoden said was, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? And I think about what the future King Aragorn said. He told him, he said, ride out with me. Ride out with me. Face them against unbelievable odds. In the back of Aragorn's mind were the words of Gandalf, who said, look for my coming. On the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. So you see, he had a hope within him that even though we go to face this contagion, there's a chance, there's hope. There's always hope, child of God. Where do you think Tolkien got that type of impact from? So how did he come to this? How did Lot get in this situation? I want to give you a little bit of background about Sodom, the nation, the city-state of Sodom. If you look to Genesis, the 13th chapter, that's where you first have it mentioned. By the way, this is the post-flood world. The world was judged by God for many, if not all, of the things that are now happening again in Sodom after the flood. Genesis 13 You have the account of where Abraham and Lot separate. And it says in verse 11 that Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east. If you read back up just a little bit, Lot lifted up his eyes in verse 10, beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And Lot chose this, and it says in verse 12 that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now look at verse 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. This was already a very bad place. And when Lot, how did it come to this? Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. He became friendly in the sense of associating with and having commerce and such with Sodom. If you want to go back just a little bit before, how did Sodom come to this? It says the men were wicked and sinners exceedingly before the Lord. You don't have to turn there. I'll be happy to give you the site later. But in Ezekiel 16, hundreds of years after the days of Sodom, the Lord says to his nation in Ezekiel, he says in verse 48, As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. He's speaking to his nation. And that was a real insult, a real slap in the face. He said, your sister is Sodom. He says, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. This is how it all began. Listen to this. 
This was the iniquity. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now don't think that he's throwing that all off on the ladies, the daughters of Sodom. He's speaking of Sodom in a, in a female sense of being a sister. So he's not just picking on the women. You understand? It was the men. It was the culture of Sodom. And it began with pride. They were lifted up in pride. Is, is there any way around connecting that to what you see out there in the gay pride movement today? You know, God hates pride, period. Amen. And isn't it interesting that that movement would select something as a banner that God hates? Pride. That's what happened to Sodom. That's how they started in the direction of where they wound up. It was pride. And they were also very prosperous. Fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. In other words, the society of Sodom, the culture was bent on recreation. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to, they wanted to just recreate. They just wanted to have fun. I'll do my job, you know, pay the bills, do what I got to do, and then just have fun. You know, with no regard for the glory of God. Okay? So when you back up and see how did we get here, notice, the, notice what it says. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So don't ever forget that in Sodom, there was the poor and needy. Now, it, it just kind of begs the question, who are the poor and needy? Well, you can get no poorer and no more needy than a child, right? So we know without question that they had children in Sodom. But then there's also people in the society that maybe didn't have as much prosperity as others, and they were, they were neglected. They were marginalized because of the prosperity and the pride of Sodom. Notice it says in verse, well, it says in verse 50, and they were haughty. That's prideful. And they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. The Lord said it was good for me to take away Sodom, to wipe it out because of the abomination of where they wound up when they started down that slippery slope. Now, if you want to know a little more specific details about what exactly was going on in Sodom, you can look at Leviticus, the 18th chapter. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. But Leviticus 18 spells out specifically what was going on in the land of Canaan prior to the children of Israel coming into the land. And also what was going on in Egypt, which is the land where the children of Israel came out of. Sounds like they were kind of surrounded, doesn't it? So the Lord says in Leviticus 18, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, I am the Lord your God. Watch what he says now. After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. And then in verse 6 is another reason that in the verses following that, it's, it's more reasons why you can appreciate the King James translation. Because whatever age you are, you'll have some level of understanding about what he's talking about. And it's very, very tactful language. The modern versions, they're very non-tactful. 
bring a lot of questions from all ages, especially the young. So in verse 6, you have him detailing what was going on in Egypt and what was going on in Canaan. And it gives you an idea. It helps you understand why God wanted the Canaan land cleansed before his people came in there. He said, I don't want you mixing cultures with these people in Canaan land. This is one of the reasons, because of what they were doing, how they had defiled themselves. From verses 6 on down to verse 20, basically, you have the Lord detailing relationships that were inappropriate. Completely inappropriate relationships. And whatever age you are, you can understand what he's talking about. It deals with inappropriate relationships that were not godly, were not appropriate. And you only have to read a verse or two and go, okay, I get it. (laughs) And then you come on down to verse 21, and the Lord says, this is something that Egypt is doing and Canaan is doing, and it's inappropriate. It's ungodly before me. He says, thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. This is abortion. You see, the societies that were in Egypt and in Canaan and in Sodom, because this is is like a boiler plate that, that lays on Sodom also, they were doing these things. It's not the Lord saying, now don't get into this. It's the Lord saying, you'll see in a moment, these societies are doing these things and you, you are commanded not to do these things. The inappropriate relationships that, were go- that he describes in the first few verses were going on in Egypt and in Sodom and in Canaan. He says abortion, the murder of children, of babies was going on in Egypt, in Canaan, and in Sodom. In verse 22, it says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. The word abomination means disgusting. It's, it means something that would, that would make you sick. <laughs> you know, have you ever maybe drank milk that was a little too ripe? That <laughs> was a little past the date? And it had that taste to it? I mean, I have. I'm notorious for trying milk that is after the date. Sometimes I've tried it just to see how long it would last. I'm not kidding you now. We had one that lasted a week and a half after the date. (laughs) Sister Tracy wouldn't touch it. But I kept trying it until nothing wrong with that. It tastes fine. And I tried to drink it all up. I just don't like to waste things. But have you ever had something where you drank it and it just spewed it out? I mean, it just was awful. tasted terrible. Last night, Sister Tracy cooked some great... Great chocolate chip cookies. And I'm one of those guys that likes the dough, you know? And so the dough thing was in the... I can't, I can't believe she put the dough, the thing that had mixed up the dough, in the sink. I'm like, give it to me. I'll walk around the house and, and lick it clean like a, like a cow licking the salt block, you know? And so I picked it up out of the sink and I started, you know, getting the fork, scraping it off and eating it, eating it. And I didn't realize somebody had gotten soap on it. <laughs> And I'm telling you, uh, Asher was standing there, the, the guys were standing there, I was spitting it out in the, what's wrong? It's got that, and not just soap, you know, it's the dishwashing soap. It's really strong. And I, it took me a while to get that, out of, that taste out of my mouth. <laughs> when, get that mental image. That's how God views that particular sin. It's disgusting to him. Remember this. You know, what you see walking around with a smile on their, on their face or on its face, 
you know, seeming to be happy and in love and all of this stuff. When God sees that, He sees everything and it disgusts Him. It's an abomination. He doesn't just see what you see on the advertisements and in some of the movies and things that are on. Everything looks happy and wonderful. And He doesn't just see, He sees the disgusting aspect of that type of relationship. It's an abomination to Him. And let me just say this now it should be an abomination to you too. We'll speak some more about that in a moment. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. There were men lying with men in Egypt and Canaan and in Sodom. It's an abomination. Same thing, women and women, same thing. Watch verse 23. Look at the progression. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. You say, Brother Tim, are you telling me that there were people having relationships with and marrying their animals in Sodom and in Canaan and in Egypt? Yes. It's exactly what the Lord says. Bestiality. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Now watch the language. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You know, it says it's an abomination, it's disgusting, it makes you throw up. The Lord described the land. They, they had defiled the land even by what they were doing. And He said, I will vomit out the inhabitants of the land because of their disgusting practices. Is that clear enough? <laughs> Back to the book of Genesis. In the 18th chapter, this is when God interacts with Abraham. God tells Abraham he's going to have a son. And then at the end of the encounter with Abraham there, this is when the Lord says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to go do. The triune God is gathered there at Abraham's tent. And notice what he says in verse 20, Genesis 18. Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is coming to me. And if not, I will know. The definition of the word cry is a shriek, like a cry for help. It's not like a chant or some other type of party type cry. It is the shriek of a victim is what that is. Does that make sense? You say, how do you know that, Brother Tim? I can prove it to you from the Word of God. Nehemiah 9 and 9 uses the same word. It says, Nehemiah says, Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heardest their cry by the Red Sea. Do you think that they were partying and chanting by the Red Sea as the Egyptian army closed in on them? I don't think so. They were crying, shrieking to God, Lord, help us, we're about to die. In Esther, the fourth chapter, when Mordecai perceived what was going on about the genocide of the Jews, it says he rent his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. That's the word right there. When he understood they were about to be eliminated, they were about to go through a holocaust, he shrieked to the Lord. And he came even before the king's gate. You see, he, he went to where he could find some relief. He went before the king's gate. In Jeremiah 48 and 4, it says Moab is destroyed. Now, now get this now. Don't miss this. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. Are y'all with me? This is the cry of the little ones of Sodom. That's part of it. It's also the poor and the needy and those that are victims. You see, this was a very violent society. Very violent. So you see Lot's dilemma? 
Could it be any clearer about what he's dealing with? You see, the woke mentality was around even back then. Okay, you say, what, what, is, what exactly is the woke mentality? I want to share with you just a little bit about what that is. The definition of woke is to be aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? That's not that threatening. But as the saying goes, the devil's in the details. Woke nowadays refers to being aware or well-informed in a political or cultural sense, especially regarding issues surrounding marginalized communities. Okay, according to the definition of woke, a marginalized community would be the African-American community, the homosexual community, in some places the Hispanic community. That, that's what to marginalize means to hold apart and separate and treat differently because of some reason like race. Of course, you know, when I say race, there's only one race. We all bleed red blood. You know, there's a really, the Word of God says there's only one race. There's different cultures and ethnic groups. Make sure you're real careful. See, even in giving into that, it kind of creates misunderstanding. So there's a Christian Post article that I just read through some of the articles that related to wokeism. This was something that was interesting. And I'll show you how this applies. I'll show you how Sodom in the days of Lot was woke. Okay. Wokeism, which some call the new religion of our day, is entirely incompatible with Christian values and left unchecked will undermine the foundation of American society. Originating from critical theory or critical race theory, wokeism challenges existing power structures and seeks to dismantle what we see as universal truths. The U.S. is a nation shaped by the principle that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Since the founding fathers were Christians, the inalienable rights from the Creator can be further expanded to include God's vision for man and society as told in the Bible. Throughout our history, Americans struggled with achieving these ideas, but still, through fierce debate, social turmoil, and even war at times, the outcome has been a continuous push towards racial and gender equality. That would be equal rights among male and female on the gender part. At least that's what it used to be. <laughs> until it's been perverted. So, preserving individual liberty and opportunities for economic prosperity. Together, our political leaders, civic activists, and communities have fought to dismantle institutional and legal systems that perpetuated racial or, or gender disparity. Today, the U.S. is one of the least prejudicial nations on earth. <laughs> Boy, that, that some, some people that don't understand truth would tear into that, okay? Because what the wokeism says, we're the most racial, uh, uh, racist nation on the planet, okay? Marginalizing certain groups. Today, the U.S. is one of the least prejudicial nations on earth. In contrast, wokeism sees our nation as fraught with oppression and racial injustice and gender norms that marginalize portions of our society, and therefore our institutions must be destroyed. That's what wokeism says. Through social media messaging, celebrities, politicians, their followers chant slogans demanding power for who they claim are powerless based on a racial or ethnic class rather than their standing with God. You see? They require all of society to abolish traditional gender norms of males and females and assert that gender is a spectrum that the individual can self-determine. Their religion relies on control and power to impose their ideas from which violence would be a natural consequence if people do not conform. Okay? That's enough reading from a Christian article. But I want you to understand that's exactly what is happening to Lot as he stands there in the door with the men of the city gathered around. That's exactly what's happening to him. Notice when Lot says in verse 
9, when Lot says in verse 7, do not so wickedly. You see, Lot is taking a stand that what you're seeking to do is wicked. They're demanding that these men, these two angels, who they don't understand are angels. They don't understand these guys are basically, you might say, superheroes. They're God's agents. I dare say that they may be the Son and the Spirit. I can't really prove that, and it's kind of a side thought. But, you know, you had God, the triune God, standing there with Abraham, and two of them leave. God the Father, Jehovah, remains there with Abraham. Anyway, whether it's angels or it's the Son of God and the Spirit of God in form, they're still powerful. They're like superheroes, but better than superheroes because they're God. They're sent from God. He says, don't do wickedly. He says, I'll give you my daughters in place of these two men, which is totally twisted, right? I mean, there's no red-blooded man under the sound of my voice that would, that would not offer himself to death to substitute instead of offering one of their children. See how twisted Lot has bought into this woke, wicked culture. See? He says, I have two daughters. Do to them as seem good unto you. And they said, stand back. And then they said among themselves, and here's where you know they are woke. Here's where you know that they have gone in the direction that Egypt, Canaan, and modern day culture today has gone. This fella came into sojourn and he's going to be a judge over us? Who are you to judge our lifestyle? This is not, they're not satisfied with just saying, okay, Lot, you go your way. No, they're demanding that Lot accept their lifestyle. You get that? Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. If we can't get what we want by words, then we'll get what we want by violence. You see that? He's living in this woke society that is dangerous. And remember, don't feel too sorry for him because he put himself there. The woke mentality was all around him. Lot was a, 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 supposedly, he looks like he's a judge in the city. I could just see, well, well, we like you and we'll make you a judge. But this judge had no teeth. He had no ability to enforce the law. It says in 2 Peter 2 that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day with the filthy acts, the filthy conversation, that goes along with abomination, of the wicked. He was hearing and seeing things on a day-to-day basis that he could do nothing about because he had immersed himself into this particular society and he was so entangled that he felt like he couldn't get out. See that? He couldn't do his job. He was a judge and he couldn't do his job. And not only that, he was not even safe in his own home because of their agenda. He was vexed. They said, this man would need to be a judge. It literally means judging, he will judge us. They're coming down a lot because he's taking a stand for what is right and for what is wrong. And they will do that to you today, brothers and sisters. There will come a time when, I'm not a prophet, but I believe with all of my heart, there will come a time that Bible-believing, professing Christians, there will come a time, it's already here where people are being dismissed from their jobs because they take a stand for the Word of God. You know, parents, you need to think about that in talking with your kids about what they go into because you, need, you don't need to be tied to some institution in such a way, whatever that institution may be. It could be a government institution. It could be 
some type of job connected to this or to that. But think about that because there's coming a time when if you profess, the time is already here, that if you profess a belief in the Word of God and traditional marriage and so forth, you'll be dismissed. You'll lose your livelihood. I'm not a prophet again, but I fully expect at some point, even in the deep south, that someone like me, who is a licensed member of the state bar, when it becomes apparent that I'm not going to give in on these truths from the Word of God, and I'd rather lose my law license than to dismiss the Word of God and the stand for that. Y'all understand that? So you need to be thinking about that in terms of who's going to preach for you down the road. It may be that the man that preaches for you cannot even hold a secular job because of the conditions of the culture. Are y'all with me? You think, you say, ah, that'll never happen. It's, it's happening right now. And look, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not trying to say, oh my gosh, you know, we got to go and hide or we got to start a commune. Or, I'm not saying that because you'll see right here, there's great hope. You know, Gandalf said, look to my coming on the morning of the fifth day, look to the east. You know, the Word of God says, look to me, look to the Lord, because there's always deliverance with the Lord. And the Lord is always going to have a presence here on this earth. I'm not saying the times are going to be easy. Matter of fact, the Word of God teaches that they're going to be very difficult times just prior to the Lord coming back. And you say, well, that scares me. The traditional experience of God's people through the centuries has not been prosperity. And I don't want to throw prosperity out the window. But prosperity alone, in and of itself, is not worth trading off God's Word and your stand for God in the kingdom. Lot could not do his job. He was not safe in his own home. And they were accusing him of hate speech. You're going to hate on us? You're going to treat us this way? You're going to marginalize us and tell us that we're doing wrong? So what was Lot's solution? Well, as it is for you, and as as it is for me in any circumstance, Lot's solution was divine intervention. You hear me? Don't ever forget that if the whole world goes woke, which it pretty much has, or the whole world says you you are committing a crime because you're taking a biblical stand that this is sin, this is wrong, and this is righteousness, and this is right. It doesn't matter if you're the last person left on the face of the earth. Lot was the last person left in Sodom who had any idea or any concept of the truth of right and wrong. He was the last one. And here comes divine intervention. The men who were trying to break in, trying to destroy him, with one movement, the angels smote them with blindness. And I'm going to tell you, that's prophetic and it's... Is for real. It really happened, but it's also metaphorical for us today. The folks that are caught up in that movement are blind. They cannot see your position. That doesn't mean you'd be quiet about it. They cannot see your position and they, they're blind because the sin, that direction, that, that takes you completely blinds you. It says that in the book of Romans, that they are given over to a reprobate mind. Now, they may be beyond your reach, but they're not beyond God's reach. Praise God. Don't ever forget that. So they smote them with blindness. And it says the men said to Lot. So you can just, you can just picture the, the dramatic scene that is going on here. It, notice it says that when those men were smote with blindness, they were still trying to find the door. <laughs> they were both small and great, and they wearied themselves to find the door. They're so mad, and they're blind, 
You know, instead of falling down on their knees, say, oh Lord, help me, I'm blind, I need my side back. They're so mad that they're still trying to claw and find the door so they can go on their insane deeds that they're trying to accomplish, even though they're blind. That's probably the scariest part about the whole thing, isn't it? So you can, you can almost just hear the clawing that's going on at the door and the walls as they're wearying themselves to find the door. Where's the door? Where's the door? I can't see. And inside, the angels are saying, who else have you got here? Hast thou any here besides son-in-law, sons, daughters, whatsoever thou hast in this city, bring them out of this place. It took divine intervention to ultimately deliver Lot. And now listen, don't let yourself get in the position that Lot was in where it takes God miraculously sending two angels to deliver you. Don't let your mind and your heart succumb to the culture the wicked culture, till you get to that point to where you, the only hope you've got is some miracle. That's a miracle to follow the Lord in and of itself. But you see, Lot had to have this divine intervention, this miraculous event take place in order to get him out from this terrible situation he was in. You know, a lot of people learn in life by the hard knocks of life. They just keep running into walls and the dead ends they run into, you know, teach them that they have to go another way. That's a rough way to live. You know that? That's a hard way to live. You don't have to live that way. By the grace of God, the Word of God is there for you, especially the Proverbs, so that the young man, the young woman, can avoid running into those dead ends again and again and, and bloodying your forehead from running into those dead ends and going through these terrible tragedies and God has to send a miracle to get you out of those. You know, quite honestly, there's times when God doesn't send a miracle. He just leaves a person to go the way that they've chosen. And the next thing you know, you know, they're like Samson or something. They, they've reached the end. There's nowhere else to turn. There's only one place, and that's the Lord up. <laughs> you see, Let, let's don't be the type of people that learn from tragedy or from mistake after mistake after mistake. And that's what Lot did. He made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake until he is so tied in and surrounded that he can't see a way out. And God sends a miracle, divine intervention. Listen, let me just give you another lesson from Lot. If you have one single godly friend in your life, that one godly friend is worth more to hang on to than a hundred friends who are not godly. Are y'all listening to me? One single godly friend. And look, Lot had the ultimate friend in his life. You know who that was? It was his uncle, Abraham, who was declared to be the friend of God. One single God. Some of you may say, maybe you're having a little pity party and say, well, I don't have any friends. <laughs> Brother Tim's been there many times riding on the tractor on the back 40. Y'all always go back to y'all. y'all I know y'all think that I was, you know, psychologically affected by cutting hay, raking hay, baling hay, fluffing hay, all that. I mean, you know. It definitely shaped who I am. But there was many times on the tractor, I said, I ain't got a friend in the world. Nobody knows I'm out here. Well, Daddy knew I was out there because he put me out there. <laughs> and whether I realized it or not, Daddy was my friend. He was making me work. Praise God. <laughs> but we've all been there. I've got a friend in the world. Let me, say, let me just say this. You ever heard the song, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. You may not have a friend in the world. I'll grant you that. Maybe you don't. Maybe not. But you've got an otherworldly friend named Jesus Christ. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. I didn't realize when I was out there 
poor-mouthing my life and myself and lonely and thinking I didn't have a friend in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ was riding that tractor with me. Why didn't I talk to Him? Why didn't I have a conversation with Him? Lot had the friend of God in his life, and he let him go over confusion and prosperity. That's why he let him go. And he could have gone back at any time. Many times he had the opportunity. Pack up the family and head back west. But he didn't do it. One of the greatest lessons that you can get from Lot is if you have a godly friend, hold on tightly to those friends. Hold on to them. They won't let you down. They're not perfect, but they won't let you down, you see? Listen, you say, well, I don't have any friends. I'll volunteer to be your friend. You say, well, Brother Tim, you know, I'm 14 or I'm 17 and you're 51. It doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. One of my best friends in the world, when we first came to this church years ago, aside from my wife, of course, aside from her was Brother Mackie Deason. You know, we shared a common view, a common vision, and he strengthened me, and he was way older. I want to tell you how much, but he was way older than me. It didn't matter. I'll be your friend. And you don't have to tell anybody, if you're embarrassed of me being your friend, you don't have to tell anybody that I'm your best friend. I won't be offended by that. Godly friends will celebrate your victories and they will enter into the grief of your defeats. They won't be jealous of you. They won't hate on you. They'll be happy for you when you succeed and they'll be there for you when you fail. That's a godly friend. That is a great lesson from Lot. Hold on to your godly friends. Another lesson from Lot when it comes to Sodom is get out. Get out. That's what the angels are doing. If you go follow on the, the reading here, there were two angels, right? That's what it says. And so finally, after they were you know, chastening Lot, you know, trying to get Lot to come on, and he's just messing around. He, he just won't get out. He's so stunted in his, in his character by the things that he's experienced in Sodom that he can't even have the sense just to put his feet down and start walking. And it says finally that they grabbed them by the hand. And I can just picture that. There were two angels, and I assume that the angels you know, had two hands each. That's a total of four hands, right? We know angels, they got hands. And so the one angel had Lot in one hand and his wife in the other hand, and the other angel had one of the daughters in one hand and the other daughter in the other hand, and they're just marching them out out of the city. Don't get in that position, child of God. But get out is what it says. Listen, I don't know if y'all remember the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. Now, me personally, I'm terrified of tsunamis. I've dreamed that I've died drowning. Tsunamis terrify me. I know I got one or two of my children that terrifies them too. But I did a lot of watching and even there's movies that's been made about that Boxing Day tsunami. Did you know that it killed over 200,000 people? Almost 250,000 people. The numbers fluctuate because there's many of those countries that didn't keep a census. 200, 250,000 people. All because of a big wave that comes through and an earthquake. It's very interesting to read about the things that happened on the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004 in the Indian Ocean. I've watched videos of it and seen home videos, so forth, okay? There were a few people that survived. And listen to this. This is interesting. What happened was they were out there on the beach, and all of a sudden the waters start receding. Listen, if you ever see that and you're at the beach, let me just tell you, run. <laughs> run for the hills. But it, in the Boxing Day tsunami, it says that this rare sight induced people, especially children, to visit the coast to investigate and collect stranded fish on as much as 1.6 miles of exposed beach 
in different places. And of course, they were completely drowned. It's a miracle that any of those folks survived. Now listen to this. It says, one of the few coastal areas to evacuate ahead of the tsunami was on the Indonesian island of Simileu, close to the epicenter. Island folklore recounted an earthquake and tsunami in 1907, and the islanders fled to inland hills after the initial shaking of the earthquake. The tales and oral folklore from previous generations may have helped the survival of the inhabitants. On Makao Beach in North Phuket City, Thailand, a 10-year-old British tourist named Tilly Smith had studied tsunamis and geography at school and recognized the warning signs of the receding ocean and frothing bubbles. She and her parents warned others on the beach, which was evacuated safely. A 10-year-old. <laughs> a 10-year-old had more sense in that circumstance than many people who were just going out there. And I probably would, without knowledge of what a tsunami is, I'd probably been one of those go out there and start picking up fish. Wow, this is neat. 250,000 people. And think about all the people that looked upon that and saw that water going out and think, wow, that's so neat. And there was just a handful that ran for the hills. Are y'all with me? That's our society today. The tidal wave of this type of thing is upon us. We need to run to the hills. <laughs> I don't mean withdraw from society. When I mean run to the hills, I mean talk these things with our family and with our children. When my children were young, I, I was so unnerved by all of the stuff that was going on. I'm talking about 20-something years ago. I just avoided it. I just cut it off, dismissed it, got rid of it. And then after time goes on and on and these things become more and more popular, I realize I can't just dismiss it. I can't ignore it because they're going to face it out there someday. And they need to understand the lessons from Lot. You understand me? So, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just telling you that this is perhaps the greatest fight of our time. Now, the lessons from Lot are this. Number one, divine intervention is always, God never sleeps. It's always there. It may come through two angels showing up at somebody's door like it did with Lot. Or it may come through your burden from the Word of God that you study the Word of God and you understand what the Word of God says about these particular issues. It can come from so many different directions, but rest assured, it will come. And let me just, the Word of God is very direct. In Leviticus 18, it's very direct as it tells us about what is going on in those nations of Egypt, in the nations of Canaan, and in the nation of Sodom. So let me just be very direct. It does affect you whether you realize it or not. You, you can't hide from it, okay? You can't hide from it. So in one sense, the men of Sodom... The men of Sodom, as they did with Lot, they have gathered around your house. They're there, whether you realize it or not. As a matter of fact, they demand to come in. They demand to be accepted. You say, well, I'm not going to let them in my house. But maybe you already have, because don't you have a television in your house? You have a television. And every single new show on the television has an element of this in it. Every single one, without exception. He said, well, we're sticking to the old shows, the Andy Griffiths and the, you know, the um, <laughs> My Three Sons. And I mean, you know, some of these, I could go on. <laughs> but those shows have advertisements in between them. And the advertisements are now giving that to you. It's in your house. Sodom, instead of going and living in Sodom now, Sodom has come into your house. Now, if that unnerves you a little bit and you pay a little bit more attention about what your kids are looking at, watching on TV, or looking at on the phone, 
then praise God, I've done my job. <laughs> you get mad at me, I'll forgive you. <laughs> They're already there. They demand to come in. Lot offered his children to them. Have you? Have you offered your children to the sodomites? Sodom is in every show. And let me just say this to you. If you feel one hint of guilt or regret over completely preventing that from getting in your house, then the woke agenda, the sodomite agenda, has affected you. You should feel no shame, no regret, no issue whatsoever. As a matter of fact, you should feel like God feels, which is it's disgusting. It's disgusting. There was a movie on a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago. And it was, an, of course, it was an Academy Award winner. And I didn't see the movie. I'm not going to see it. But I do read about these things. What was this all about? Why was it so popular? And it's not just because I'm a preacher. You should be investigating things too because the next thing you know, one of your kids might come up and say, hey, I watched this movie. Well, you might not even know what it's about. It was a movie called The Power of the Dog. It starred some very popular people. And it was an Academy Award winner. And I thought, you know, what's the big deal? Because that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty cool title. <laughs> you know, The Power of the Dog. So I began to look into that, and it's about, in the early 1900s, it's a rewriting of history, is what most of that agenda is about. So in the early 1900s, you have a young man who is struggling with his identity, and he identifies himself as, as someone that would be an abomination to God. Is that clear enough? And he's, there is a, a, man, a supervisor over the ranch that he works on, and this man is a harsh man, and he's, he's a hateful man towards that especially, which basically in those days was unknown. <laughs> Historically, in, on the ranch and in those days, see, they try to rewrite those things to make you think this has always been around and always been an element. Well, if it was an element at all, it's so obscure and so small that nobody ever knew about it or talked about it until recent times. Y'all understand that? So they rewrite something like a wholesome place where young men would learn to be men under supervision of hopefully godly men, and they pervert it into something where you've got a rancher supervisor who is down on and condemning this effeminate uh, young man in his late teens. And I thought, okay, you know, that's not surprising. The surprising part was this. You know where the power of the dog comes from? Psalm 22 and 20. They took one of the most precious verses that applies to the sacrifice of our Savior for your sins. And they applied it in an abominable way to the young man who was effeminate and abominable being delivered from the power of the dog, the supervisor. You get that? They twisted that beautiful scripture to apply to a young man who was being marginalized by a wicked, oppressive supervisor. When the reality of that verse in Psalm 22, 20, those of you that I've been hearing flipping to it, is about Jesus Christ on the cross where He cries out and He says, deliver thy darling from the power of the dog. The Roman army, the Romans, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, deliver thy darling from the power of the dog. You see, don't just let me be the one that has to look at something like that and understand just how wicked it is. Don't be oblivious to the agenda that's at your door, maybe inside your house, knocking on the door, demanding to be accepted and let in. There's always divine intervention. Hey, who knows? Maybe today, 
Maybe this message is divine intervention for us to be truly woke. And I mean woke to the Word of God. Woke to the Kingdom of God. Wake up to the things of God. As Paul says, awake! Rise and shine, Isaiah said. Rise up and understand the issues that are before us. Lessons from Lot. God is always on the throne. He never sleeps. There's always divine intervention. Young, old, middle-aged, whatever you may be, do not let go of your godly friends and get out. Or, in our circumstance today, keep it out. Keep it out. It's not a lot of fun preaching stuff like this. But with all that's within me, from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, I believe that we need to hear things like this so that we can process what's going on around us. Because it's all around us. And one sweet day, God's going to give us complete deliverance from this wicked world system. And we're going to have glory, glory, and glory forever in heaven. But until then, let us battle on. Let us fight on. Let us fight for our children. Fight for our spouses. Fight for our friends. Fight for the kingdom of God. We have the power. We have the tools. We have the weapons that God has given us. And it far surpasses any weapon of man. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism, we'll give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.